This lecture is brought to you by Knox Theological Seminary on iTunes U. Knox is a seminary in the tradition of the Reformation that exists to educate men and women to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that this teaching will be beneficial in your Christian life and ministry. The unavoidable but sort of cliched question that you have to ask when you start a class like this is why study this person? Why are we meeting here for a week to do this when most of us aren't even Lutheran? You know, why come study Luther for a week in this humid place, which is very, be very beautiful. <laughs> um, and there are a lot of ways you can answer that. You know, one is just to say Luther is a forceful personality in the history of Christian theology, and for that reason he is important. So we want to look at him just to make sure we kind of have him down. Another thing is to say it's simple historical fact that Luther is important um, in the flow of world history and events. He's not um, just relegated to church history because, of course, the Reformation changed the sort of face of um, Europe after it happened. Lots of change in terms of authority and governance and church structures, of course. So he's a very important for that way. Um, but I think the thing we'll come to see is that the crucial thing about Luther is that his theology addresses questions that we are still grappling with today. Um, how do we talk about God in his relation to human beings? How does salvation occur? How can we have confidence about the salvation we have in Jesus Christ? What sort of assurance do we have? Who am I as a human being before God? There's these big sort of fundamental questions that are always at the forefront of Luther's thought and are shaping things. Um, I want to read to you just a short bit from Luther's small catechism. I'm going to be coming to the small and large catechisms regularly because they're great documents. And if we had another day, I would think we would want to study these. Um, this is Luther's explanation of the second article of the Creed. He's already laid out sort of a summary of the creed, and now he's about to answer the question, was ist das? What does this mean? He says, I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father in eternity, and also a true human being, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord. He has redeemed me, a lost and condemned human being. He has purchased and freed me from all sins, from death, and from the power of the devil not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death. He has done all this in order that I may belong to him, live under him in his kingdom, and serve him in eternal righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, just as he has risen from the dead and lives and rules eternally. This is most certainly true. This is the linchpin for Luther's theology. Jesus Christ has purchased and redeemed me from all sins, from death, and the power of the devil. That's the linchpin on which Luther's small catechism turns, and it is the foundation for everything else um, that flows out of his theology. Um, and the focus there on sin, death, and the devil is really distinctive and is really important because God has not just saved me, but he saved me from these particular things. In a lot of ways, uh, Luther's world was very similar to us, but there are other ways that in which it was very different. And sin, death, and the devil give us sort of a mirror or a window into seeing um, those similarities and dissimilarities. 
So with sin, original sin hasn't changed throughout history. People are always people. They will always get into trouble. They will always turn in on themselves. We will always create idols, find ways to break God's commandments. Those things have never changed. Luther had to deal with the same problems back then that we have today. But the interesting thing about the way he had to deal with sin was that he had this church structure over here, um, which both enabled sin by allowing you to purchase an indulgence, and which we'll come to that later today. So it kind of gave you an easy way out from sin and said, why don't you just keep going? Because you can always return here to get an indulgence and be free. So it enabled sin. And on the other hand, it didn't really allow for that word of forgiveness to be heard. Um, confession was not a fun thing to go to. And so you have all these people who are either getting out of their sin really easily and they don't care about it, or you have these tortured consciences who have no comfort. They're worried about their soul, and then they can't hear this word of absolution from the church. So that, that's one thing that shaped Luther's, Luther's theology, is saying, how do I proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to people such that they know that they are fully forgiven of all their sins, and that part of the gospel is the fact that you have this new life in Christ and, and that the Holy Spirit um, gives you a new will, new desires, and things like that. How do I preach a gospel that forgives you of sin and takes you in new directions, but also doesn't just crush you? And that's a tricky thing, and that's something Luther would always wrestle with. Can I ask a question? Of course. I heard, I read, I, heard, I think I heard said that this second catechism that Luther penned was, in his mind, Luther's mind, one of two of his greatest works. Abonage of Will was the first, and this second catechism was the second, or maybe in the second order. But is that true or not? That is true. He, at the end of his life, he said, the books of his that were worth keeping were the small and large catechisms and the bondage of the will. The small and large. Mm -hmm. Okay. Small catechism is meant for, you know, fathers and mothers to teach their household, and the large catechism was meant for preachers. So he was sort of shaping all of church and society um, by the work of the catechism. So those, those are just they're extremely important for Luther and his understanding of theology and what it's for. Yeah. Along those lines, then, would you recommend a critical edition of those in particular? I would recommend this. Um, I can pass this. Yeah, just the Book of Concord? Yeah, it's the Book of Concord. This is the Kolb-Winger edition. Um, it's sort of the newest critical edition. Can non-Lutherans buy this? Or is that I mean, I really know. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to have to pass the test first, but maybe after this week, you'll be able to do that. Right. Um, if you get an older version by a guy named Tappert, that's also fine. Um, I think this is sort of the nicest version, and it has, you know, with the text like the Augsburg Confession, it has German and Latin on facing sides, so. Is that like an authoritative version for like Missouri Synod? Um, I think a lot of Missouri Synod pastors are going to lean more towards the older Tappert version because there is some dispute about which version of the Augsburg Confession to use. Gotcha. Um, but you'll, you will see a lot of them use this, too, because one of the editors is Robert Kolb, and he is a big Missouri Synod theologian. Is that essentially the same as the bookofconcord.org? It'll have all the same things, yeah. Mm -hmm. So if you want to look at it there, that's also very good. Um, 
Okay, so we, we've, we've talked about sin. The next thing is death. And this is also a thing that is similar and very different because, like now, everybody is still going to die. Um, but the, the European mindset at that time was different because in the 1300s, they had just experienced the Black Plague, which wiped out you know, a huge amount of the population. And even in 1527, there was a reoccurrence of the plague in Wittenberg while Luther was there. So you just never know um, when something like that was going to hit back in that day. They had um, a very short life expectancy. Luther was doing well to live. Exactly what was the Black Plague? The Black Plague. Bubonic Plague. Uh, yeah. It's the Bubonic Plague. Bubonic yeah. Plague. Okay. Um, yeah, very short life expectancy. Luther had to bury um, a number of his children. Um, it, was, it was a rough life, and he did very well to live to, I think he was 63 or so. Um, Health care was not always that good. Um, so I, I think an adult male, if, if he made it to you know, mid-40s, you were doing pretty good. Um, and that's another thing that shapes this message that he has to um, preach is, how do I give a word of comfort? to the bereaved, such that they can trust that God is a God of resurrection and new life? And how do I give a word to those who are dying, which eventually is all of us, such that as bodily pain is afflicted, and as I lose my mental faculties, that I can trust that it's not on my own power, but the Holy Spirit is working in me to bind me and keep me fast to that promise. These sorts of questions so central to Luther. Everything is always moving towards proclamation and meeting people in their real world of sin and death. And most interestingly, the devil. Um, I, you know, I'm one of those people that I believe in the devil, but I don't think about him every day. Uh, that, I, think, you know, I think that's a lot of, like a lot of people in Western Christianity is even if you affirm the reality of the devil, it's hard to think about him in daily life. That was not the case for Luther at all. Um, Luther thought he lived in a very uh, sort of apocalyptic world. There is a battle going on all the time between God and the devil, and we are caught in between that. Um, In some of these documents, maybe even some of the ones we've read, you'll find Luther getting into imagined dialogues with the devil. Because he'd say, you know, "In, in my darkest time, the devil will come up and he will start saying, uh, you know, Mr. Luther, you know, you may have done okay today, but I know what you thought in your heart about that woman. And I know that you didn't com- commit murder, but I know what you really were thinking about Tetzel today. And, you know, and he would accuse him, and, and Luther would say, at that point, I am in this, locked in this battle, and the only thing I can do is say, shut up, devil. Use a lot of scatological language. <laughs> and then say, I am baptized. And if I am baptized in Christ, I have all the promises that were given to me there. Um, so, yeah. Is, so, in that vein, is the uh, Inkpot urban legend, is that really true? Or, like, Luther was like, translating the German New Testament and he felt like the devil was, like, right there, and so he threw an inkpot against the wall or something? You know, as, as with so many good stories about Luther, I'm not sure what can be verified, but it seems entirely consistent. Okay. I think it's on Snopes.com now. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. It seems consistent with his dialogue. Yeah, exactly. Um, so 
that's some of the best times when you find Luther talking to the devil because he's both humorous, but he's also very insistent on being clear about the promises that we have. Um, so that's, that is very great. Um, and I think you know, this sort of diabolical trinity or the unholy trinity of sin, death, and the devil really points us to what is clear and important about Luther because while he lived in a somewhat different time, um, in a world that was kind of strange to us, his whole life and ministry was based on witnessing to the God who gives us the promise in Jesus Christ of distinguishing and applying law and gospel to people in pastoral care and preaching and making sure that those who need to be broken will be broken so that they can hear the gospel and that those who are already coming broken and humbled will hear that their sins are forgiven for the sake of Jesus Christ. So that's what I, you know, I want this class to be about, is just thinking with Luther about how we do the same thing, about how we deliver that message, whether it's in teaching, preaching, counseling, uh, any, any kind of pastoral care, or just the fact that as Christians we are called to be, as Luther says, little Christs to one another. We are always bearing a word and a message. So I hope that that is the kind of thing we get out of this this week. Yeah. Um, I mean, you said this tripartite distinction of sin, death, and devil uh, mm -hmm. was something that Luther really championed. And I mean, in reading all this stuff, it definitely is. Yeah. Is it not though a historic part of the way that Christianity thought about this? I mean, as part of the baptismal rites, correct? Yeah. And is it that Luther took this and kind of put that framework on steroids? Is it, did he, or is he just in keeping with what was very much a prominent way of thinking about theology on the ground for the Christian for a long time? I would say yes. Um, he did sort of put it on steroids and he made the focus on sin, death, and the devil just extremely emphatic and often more so than you're gonna find in other theologians before him and his contemporaries. Um, just because Luther, more than almost any other theologian, I won't say more than any, or any other churchman, felt embattled. <laughs> he felt afflicted um, by his sin in him and by the fact that this death was all around him and the devil was there. Mm. So I, I would say, yeah, it's not that he's being entirely unique here, but he's sort of pushing it um, to the forefront in ways that people didn't always do. Is it, why, why is that? I mean, was he kind of a little bit off? <laughs> oh, yeah, but who isn't? <laughs> yeah, but I know, but more so than a little bit. I mean, we're, we're all off. I understand yeah. that. But to me, as I'm reading all this stuff, he was just, God, he, he was just haggard with this his remorse over sin and he could never clean himself up enough to even be a somebody that could interface with God in a realistic way. He seemed like he was a little bit, I don't know the term because I'm not a psychiatrist, psychiatrist but the, I don't know what he was, but he wasn't normal. Mm. He wasn't normal, that is true. Um, <laughs> I think in, you know it's, it is sort of an older view uh, that would say maybe Luther did have psychological problems. Um, I think if you, you know, read his good biographers now, like Heiko Obermann, um, he's got a great biography of Luther, he'll say like, yeah, we can't really just attribute any of these things to mental illness or um, some sort of chemical imbalance. 
So, I, and that's part, it's just part of his life history too, which we'll, we're about to get into of saying, he had a very interesting life and the breakthroughs that he made, which sort of set him free from a lot of that yeah. anguish and despair. Um, we all would have probably been in a very similar place if we had been through some of the things he had been through. Yeah. And, and it varies from day to day. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good question. I will say that later on, um, he had kidney stones, that, which almost killed him. And you know, it's around that time of his life when he's doing things like writing horrendous things about the Jews. The Jews, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so sometimes you can attribute things to Luther's health or his mental condition, but not always. And then you, we can't exonerate him. Obermann thought that, that maybe at the very end when he wrote like, against the Jews and their lies, that maybe some of the, the acid buildup, do I remember that? Oh, yeah. Kidney stones <laughs> might have. Uh, acid buildup? Because he actually Jews? sounds okay. almost unluther like. He's just yeah. he's steroid on steroid. Yeah, it's, it's unluther-like and it's vitriol towards other humans who aren't the early papacy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and it is full of theological moves that don't fit. That don't fit the rest of his yeah. moves. Yeah. I mean, you know, as we get to the bondage of the will, one of the things that Luther says over and over again is we cannot speculate about the divine will apart from what is revealed to us in Jesus Christ, which is that God gives his grace for us. Um, and in against the Jews and their lies. It's full of sort of... Speculation. Yeah, speculation. There's no explication of where we go there. Romans 11, where he just undoes it. Yeah. So that's a, that's a, a good thing to bring up. These courses provide a glimpse into our academic programs. Knox students can take one-week or semester-length courses in person at our South Florida campus or choose to complete a degree entirely online. By bringing together academic excellence, a vibrant community of learning, and flexible scheduling, Knox offers today's students timeless truth through modern convenience. For more information about earning credit toward a master's degree, please visit our website at knoxseminary.edu.